Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming tonight. Y'all having a good week so far? Kind of cool. Well, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, let's bow before the Lord and pray and ask him to bless our time of Bible study together this evening. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come together tonight to study your word, to fellowship with one another. We thank you that we are uh, in unison as one, as the family of God, that we are one in the Holy Spirit, united with Christ, our Redeemer. And Father, we thank you that we can have the privilege of praising and glorifying you, of being called your children, of uh, joining together and bringing our concerns and our prayers before you tonight. Lord, we pray that in all that we do, that you would be honored and glorified. Father, give us insight and wisdom into your word. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this evening, we're continuing to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes together. And this evening, we come to the last portion of chapter three. And the teacher looks at something in life that is greatly disturbing to him. And it is the problem of injustice. And it is one of these situations in life that makes him pronounce everything is hevel. Everything is empty. Everything is frustrating. Everything is mysterious and enigmatic. And, and so he looks at this problem of, of injustice. And essentially what he does in this passage is he holds out two potential solutions to this enigma, to this problem. And they're as different as night and day in terms of uh, how we should think about the problem of injustice in our world. And so he addresses these, he kind of lays out both of these different possible solutions. And unfortunately, at least in this passage, he doesn't come to a solid conclusion, you know, a period exclamation point on this is the right way. He, he holds out these options for us. He kind of hints at the direction that we should think about this. But remember, Ecclesiastes is it's kind of an unfolding conversation uh, with himself in a way. He's he's going back and forth between things that he sees, but also truths that he knows from the word of God, from faith. And he's wrestling with these things. And sometimes along the way, he doesn't always come to a full conclusion of the matter. So it's a kind of a work in progress, if you will, as we walk through Ecclesiastes. But he deals with a, an issue that we continue to see every day in our world. And that is the problem of injustice. And so in verse 16, we have the problem observed. He sees the problem and he states the problem. And so he says in verse number 16, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. So he's seeing something through observation, through his experience in life that is upside down. This, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. In a 
in a perfect world run according to God's justice and righteousness, this would never be. This would never happen. So he's wrestling with this, with the idea of God's justice and righteousness, as well as his providence and control over his world, but also what he sees with his eyes. And that is that sometimes there are times when justice isn't served and right people are convicted uh, or righteous people, I should say, are convicted, but wicked people go free. And that's wrong. That, that's upside down. It shouldn't happen that way. I was reading a commentary this afternoon. This is by James Ballhagen. And he says this, the biggest problem with which the human race must deal is the human race. He says, indeed, the world itself is a fallen place and the phenomena occurring within it are not going to make sense. But more often than not, the problems with the world per se are only circumstantial compared to the worst aspect of all, and that is human sin. The vicious cycle of the world is only made worse by its inhabitants. So he says it's only fitting then that Solomon in his, in his investigation of wisdom begins by talking about corruption in the highest places. And he says, unrighteousness and injustice are everywhere, even in the places where one might assume and expect the opposite. And so in the place where we should find justice, such as a court of law, we find injustice. In the ancient world of Israel, typically matters, important matters of business or even important matters of justice would be taken care of at a gathering place at the city gates where the elders, the judges would meet and they would decide these important matters. And he says, I've seen injustice happen. I've seen uh, the place where there should be judgment, where there should be justice. And, and these are attributes of God, aren't they? Justice, righteousness. But instead of that, the exact opposite is there, wickedness. And he uses the same word twice, I think, for emphasis. Wickedness was there. Wickedness was there. This shouldn't be. And so what is the problem? The problem is that there is the presence of injustice in the world. That's not something that only Solomon saw, was it? But something that we see all the time. Uh, where one decision should be made, but the exact opposite, the unjust decision is made. We see it in our world. It's everywhere around us. But this is confusing. It's, it's mysterious. It's enigmatic because the way it's supposed to work is living righteously is supposed to lead to blessing. And living wickedly is supposed to lead to judgment. That's the way it's supposed to work. In fact, if you read the wisdom of Proverbs, such as like Proverbs 3 in, in describing wisdom, the idea of proverbial wisdom is if you pursue wisdom, if you fear the Lord, then his blessing will follow. But if you choose the wrong path and you walk the path of foolishness, of folly, then the end thereof is destruction. So that's the grid through which he's looking at this. But the problem is that real events in life aren't matching up with that pattern. 
So what do we do with that? And so essentially what he does is he holds out two possible solutions about injustice, things going on that shouldn't be happening. Well, two potential solutions. One solution is that justice is delayed. So there will be justice, but when or how, we don't know. He presents that one in verse 17. He says, I said to myself, literally, I said in my heart, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Now, if you were here last week, this verse has, uh, is very reminiscent of the opening part of chapter three, where we hear this, this poem, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. He picks up on that same theme of God's providential control of the events of life. And he says, I said in my heart, there's got to be a time where God will exercise judgment. There's got to be a time when God will bring both the righteous and the wicked to account and decide things according to his righteousness. A time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Those, those words are very reminiscent of the opening of chapter 3. There's a time for everything under the sun. Well, he says in verse 17, that means there should be a time for judgment as well. Where God will take these injustices and he will make them right. And so if justice is delayed, then here's what that means. The wicked will eventually be held accountable by God and will be punished. So that's one way of resolving the tension, right? So here's how things ought to be. You do what is wicked and you're judged. You receive punishment. But what he sees in the world happening in real life is the wicked getting away with it and not getting justice. So one resolution to that conundrum is, well, justice is still going to happen just down the road. They will eventually be held accountable and be punished by God. So that justice could be delayed till later in their life and they receive what they're due and or it will be delayed until a judgment after death. So there's still, there's a time coming when God will hold them to account. That's one potential solution to the mystery of the problem of injustice. But now in verses 18 and 19, he's going to turn the coin over on, on its other side and look at the complete opposite viewpoint. And that is if justice is denied, essentially if there is no justice and those wicked people will never be held to account for what they've done. And he kind of, he looks at that, examines that in verses 18 and 19. I also said to myself, same exact phrase, I said in my heart, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. 
So do you see how those are two radically different perspectives? So verse 17 is, here's one way of looking at it. They're going to get their due eventually because God's on the throne. And they'll be judged. Another way of looking at it is nothing really matters in this world. There is no justice. Human beings are just the same as animals. We all have the same fate. It doesn't matter if you're righteous or wicked or if you're a person or an animal. We all die and we all get the same fate. That's a different way of looking at it. And he says, if this is the way that it is, then everything is pointless. It's frustrating. It's empty. And so if there is no justice, then that means the wicked get away with it and are never held accountable. If this is the case, then what advantage is there in being a human over being an animal? There's no justice if the wicked, if, if God never holds the wicked to account, then what's the difference between us and the wicked, the righteous and the wicked, or even what's the difference between us and animals, he says. We all end up with the same thing because death is our common fate. If I were to kind of put a, uh, lay a kind of a uh, lenses uh, to help us get perspective on what he's doing, in verses 17, 18, and 19 with these two different viewpoints. I would say it is basically in verse 17, he's looking at it through the lenses of faith. In verses 18 and 19, he's looking at it through the lenses of human sight, if you will. So it's kind of the difference between faith versus sight. So the answer of faith in verse 17 is, God's going to hold the wicked accountable. How? When? I don't know. The the viewpoint of sight, what he can see with his eyes under the sun in his own experience as a human being is, it doesn't matter. You're wicked, you're righteous, you're an animal, you're a person, we all die. So it's two very different ways of looking at it. One through the lens of faith, one through the lens of just what he sees with his eyes. So he goes on and he says, all go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. And you can tell from this, he's got the language of Genesis chapter two, one and two in his mind. And, and that gives us, I think, a, a clue as to which way we ought to go in terms of the choice between these two potential solutions. Because this language of, uh, for mankind was made out of dust, and to dust he shall return, that's not of Genesis 2, isn't it? Because the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul, a living being. There are several words in this passage that are reminiscent of that, of that verse in Genesis 2. Not only the idea of dust, of man being made out of the dirt of the ground, but even also the, the breath or the air, the spirit, the ruach, the Hebrew word that's breathed into man is found here. Because he says in verse number 19, he said um, that... All have the same breath. Do you see that? Animals and humans. We all have the same 
breath. Well, again, that, that word is out of Genesis 2. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. and He became a living being. And so he's, he's got Genesis in his mind. And if he has Genesis in his mind, then he knows from faith, from God's revelation, that human beings are not the same as animals, right? Because in Genesis 1, God makes creation. He makes all of all these things, all living things, fish and birds on day five. And then on day six, he makes animals. And the very last thing he makes is human beings. And it is the only aspect of God's creation of which it is said they are made in the image of God. So from a theology of Genesis, which he surely knows, he knows that human beings and animals are not the same. Human beings are higher. So I think with this language of Genesis, he's subtly pointing us in the right direction. That it does matter whether you're righteous or wicked. It does matter because there is coming a time when God will hold us to account. And verse 21, I think, is also a hint in this direction of there is a judgment coming after death. Because he says in verse 21, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now, he phrases it in terms of a question of who's to say where one goes. But. This is going in the right direction from verse 19, where he said that animals and people have the same breath, have the same spirit. But here he's saying, no, there's actually a distinction. And and so he's pointing us in the right direction that there is a, a distinction to be made between human beings and animals, which means by implication that there is a distinction, too, between the righteous and the wicked. And the one who determines where the human spirit goes up or down is God, isn't it? And so here's his provisional advice. Again, I say provisional because we haven't reached the final conclusion of the whole matter yet. But here he's going to give us some advice and similar advice to what he's given already. And that is that we should enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us in this world. He says, so I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So he says, here is here is my advice. Here's my counsel. Enjoy the life that God is giving you. Enjoy the good gifts. He's basically saying, he's reminding us here that that death is coming, isn't it? Death is coming. Whether you're righteous or wicked, whether you're a person or an animal, death is coming. That is true. That's fact. But that doesn't mean that this life as a human being is pointless. Because we can enjoy the gifts that God has given to us. We can enjoy the life that God has given to us. And we can make the most of the time and the opportunities that we have. 
And that last question of verse number 22, he says, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them? The language here is it's not super clear. It's a little bit confusing. But I, I think the idea of this question is, from our limited perspective as human beings, we don't have all the answers about what God is going to do after beyond what we can see. So, again, he's, he's looking at life in this passage. He's, he's holding out these two different options from two different perspectives. One is the response of faith. The response of faith, the response of God's word is, there's a time when God will judge. But the response of just the evidence, what he can see with his eyes, only goes so far, doesn't it? it it's a limited perspective. With his eyes, he sees injustice happening. With his eyes, he can't go beyond his own life, right? He can't see after his own death. He can't see what's going to happen after he is gone. But in that, he's holding out, even in that question, I think he's holding out uh, this, this hope of there is going to be a time of judgment. There is something after us. There is something after death. And so I think he's pointing us in the direction of that we need to live our life in light of future judgment. So death is coming. Enjoy the life you have now that God has blessed you with, but live life in light of the fact that there is a time for judgment. Verse 17. Because God is the one who will determine what will happen after our life. God is the one who will determine. And now here at this point, I think it's helpful for us to remember that Ecclesiastes is like one chapter of a bigger story. And I think it's helpful for us to read Ecclesiastes like a passage like we looked at tonight, chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. We can't look at it in isolation. If you just look at those few verses in isolation by themselves, you come away with the conclusion, what did this guy really think? You know, what did this guy really believe? Did, did he believe in heaven? Did he believe in life after death? Does he believe in a future judgment? It's, it's hard to tell from just these verses. But you expand outward and look at the surrounding story. In Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that he does believe in a future judgment. He does believe that we should remember our creator now in the days of our youth. He, does, he is going to come to the conclusion, here's the conclusion to the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments because that's the whole duty of man. He says at the end in chapter 12. So we have to read this in light of what's around it, in, in light of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. But also then we have to look even outward beyond that 
and look at the, the, the wider panoramic view of the Bible and see that from the wider story of the Bible, there is a judgment coming, isn't there? That's clear. So while from the perspective of Ecclesiastes, way back in the Old Testament, his vision is, is kind of blurry about what's coming down the road. From a New Testament revelation, giving us more insight, more knowledge with the coming of Christ and with his revelation to his apostles, we have more insight into the eternal, don't we? We have more insight into what lies after death. And so we can read this passage in light of the the wider book of Ecclesiastes, but also the wider story of the whole Bible. And we know that chapter 3, verse 17 is the right answer. When he holds out these two potential solutions, one potential solution is it doesn't matter what we do because we're just like the animals and we're just going to die. So that's one way of living. But another way of living, a better way of living from a broader perspective and an eternal perspective is, you know, it does matter how we live. Because there is going to be a time when God will hold people accountable. There is a judgment coming. And for that reason, I am thankful. And I know that you are thankful that we have a Savior who has stood in our place and redeemed us and imputed to us righteousness, not that we've earned, but that he earned a righteousness that comes from God so that when that judgment day comes and every single person stands before the throne of God, God will be able to look at us and say, you are mine. You are my child. You are justified. You are welcome into eternal joy. Why? Because Christ stood in our place. But there is a judgment coming. And so it does matter how we live in this world. It matters whether or not we walk by faith or by sight. So even when the evidence that we can see with our eyes suggests otherwise, the revelation of God's word shows us that God is on the throne, that there are times when injustice happens in this world, but that doesn't mean that God's not in control. It just means that his timing is not our timing and his ways are not our ways. And by the way, Solomon, Kohelet, the teacher, he's not the only one to struggle in the Bible with this concept of injustice. Psalm 73, Asaph, I believe, struggled with this. Uh, Habakkuk struggled with this in his prophetic book of Habakkuk. Many, many of the biblical writers struggled with a, a just God, yet injustice going on in the world. They wrestled with it. So he's not the only one to do that in the Bible. But he comes to the right conclusion in chapter 3, verse 17. God will judge. It's just going to be in his time because he's the Lord of time. As this whole chapter of Ecclesiastes 3 reminded us, there's a time for all things under the sun and God is the one who rules over that time. And so may we see uh, life, may we live life through the lens of faith. 
trusting that God will do what is right and what is just and will bring everything to its proper conclusion. I remember hearing one preacher say, the day he's looking forward to more than anything else is judgment day because that's the day when God makes everything right. All the, all the things that don't make sense, all the things that don't equal up, all, all the things that are upside down, all the injustices, that's the day when God makes them all right. And the, everything will be done according to what is just and righteous by the God of the universe. And so may we look forward to that day in faith. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you that we have your word from the teacher that gives us insight and wisdom. But Lord, we also thank you that we have given to us the the full treasure house of wisdom from your word. Lord, what a great privilege that is. Especially when we think about, Father, that there are still many people in the world, many nations, people groups, languages that don't have the scriptures. They don't have your truth written down for them, revealed to them. So, Father, what a great gift we have to be able to learn from your precious word. God, I pray that your spirit would teach us tonight. I pray that he would implant these words in our heart and that he would help us to put them into practice and to live our lives in light of your wisdom. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.